0: hello once again and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft. This is G. Mark Hardy and it's my privilege to be with you this time to talk to you about blockchain for CISOs. Now wait, before you say, hey, I know everything I need to know about blockchain, why do I need to listen to this? (laughs) Let me just ask you a question. Have you got millions in the bank right now because of your wise investment in blockchain? Um, I think we all kind of could have, should have, would have, but didn't because after all we're still in the industry and we're working so listen on and hopefully you'll find what you need to know as a security executive with respect to this rather exciting area of um, security and crypto called blockchain well let's get started now when we talk about blockchain we're still trying to figure it out to a large extent in the business application. It's one of these technologies that originated a number of years ago, back basically back in 2008. We can actually point to the actual beginning of it. And its first use was for, well, cryptocurrencies. Today, of course, Bitcoin and its altcoins have made a lot of headlines. We found situations where uh, a couple of years ago, there's a crypto exchange that said, hey, we got $190 million that, well, we can't get our hands on anymore because the founder was the guy who had the password and he seems to have disappeared. Hmm. And yet on the other side, we have people who bought some Bitcoin years ago for hundred bucks and have traded that in for a Lamborghini. That's kind of the status symbol. Hey, I've got a, a Lambo. But what's really going on? If we take a look at the genesis of blockchain it came about as a result of bitcoin and bitcoin was originally developed as sort of a alternative to our normal forms of money now when we think about the history of money in the beginning we had barter now if i had uh, a cow and you had a chicken and we needed i needed a couple of chickens well you know it's kind of straightforward to get two chickens but how do you make change with a cow do i break off a leg and say, hey, you know, I'll have a three-legged cow for a while, but when I buy more chickens, you'll get more. See, it kind of was limited. Uh, we went on to things like bronze and copper coins and ultimately the silver and gold coins. And eventually, about 1,200 years ago, the concept of paper bank notes was established. Uh, American Indians had wampum, and finally the world was on a gold standard from about 1816 to 1930. Well, the latest development in this history of money is Bitcoin, which first came onto the world scene in the year 2009. So let me ask you a question. How much money do you have? How much money do you have? Now, really? um, Well, actually, it's down to my business, so obviously you can't answer a podcast. But think about it. Or more precisely, how much money do you believe you have? I mean, can you show it to somebody right now? but well, then where, if not, where is it? Is it a little box at the bank where you go to the bank and you need to withdraw? They have a little box with your name on it and they take out some bills? No, it's a ledger entry. In fact, over 90% of money that exists in the world today only exists as a ledger entry. All the rest is because you believe. Hmm. Now, in times of economic uncertainty, people tend to want to go to some other alternative like gold. I mean, after all, gold is tangible. It's appealing, it's bright and shiny. It's a fairly limited supply, and it's difficult to increase the supply. It requires mining, which requires effort and cost. And therefore, when the value of gold exceeds the cost of mining, you can expect more gold. When the perceived value of gold goes below, the cost of mining, and kind of you've got a fixed supply for a while. And that comes and goes with time. But if you were to look in your pocket at a banknote, you'll find out that this is money only because you believe it's money. There's nothing backing it anymore. There's not a single bank in the world, not a single government in the world that has backed their currency with a tangible asset like gold. Essentially, these are what are called fiat currencies. A fiat currency simply means from the Latin, let there be, like fiat looks, you know, let there be light. Well, let there be money, and there is. And as long as everybody else joins in that consensual hallucination that this is really money, then it works. Because money allows a store and forward of value. And in a way, you can think about it, potential energy. I could dig a ditch for a man today and buy a chicken tomorrow. And if I have access to something called money, I'm able to store the value that I have created by giving somebody else my labor into getting some goods. So money essentially is transformative. I can transform it into goods. I can transform into labor and even into power. If we go back and Listen to Adam Smith, who wrote The Wealth of Nations in 1776. He writes, quote, The real price of everything, what everything really costs to the man who wants to acquire it, is the toil and trouble of acquiring it. Hmm. Which means that from time to time, some things are more desirable and therefore the price goes up. We see that with fads. We see that with new technologies. But after a while, if something falls out of favor, it's no longer considered to be as desirable and the price drops. And this is not going to be on macroeconomics at all, but we're just trying to layer in some baseline understanding for where blockchain well came from in the beginning and what we can expect in the future. Now, if I were to ask you to give me a two-word description of blockchain, what would you come up with? I hear things like distributed ledger or um, you know shared information or cryptocurrency. Well, it's an application of blockchain, it's not blockchain itself. But consider the following definition: federated mistrust. Hmm. Because if we take a look at how blockchains work and particularly public blockchain, we'll find out that it solves a particular problem of how do you do business with somebody you've never done business before for which there's no prior trust relationship. And that's really where the magic of blockchain came about is it solves this problem that has been known as a Byzantine generals problem. Now I can do a whole episode on that because it kind of gets into kind of game theory and things such as that, but imagine the, issue of you have to coordinate something Uh, and again you can look it up if you wish on wikipedia but essentially the byzantine general problem is something like this you've got two generals on opposite sides of a city if they attack the city together they can defeat the city but if they only attack individually the city will defeat them therefore how do the generals coordinate an attack well they say i'll send a messenger so messenger from general one to two attack at dawn General 2 gets the message and says, all right, we're going to attack at dawn. And we think it's fine. But then one of the lieutenants goes up to the general over at Army 1 and says, sir, what if that message never got through? We're going to attack at dawn and we're going to get decimated. Oh, well, well, we better ask for a return receipt. And so the message comes back with a return receipt from General 2 saying, yep, got your message. I'll attack at dawn. But, of course, how does General 2 know that the return receipt was received? Because this messenger could have been intercepted, crossing from one side to the other. And that's an infinite loop. And there's no real solution for that until the concept of a blockchain. So let's take a look at this. It's kind of really fascinating. If you go to the original paper, which was published in October of 2008 by the pseudonym Satoshi Nakamoto, there was a paper called Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system, and in it, it creates a purely peer-to-peer version of, quote, electronic cash without going through a financial institution using a peer-to-peer network, utilizing a hash-based proof of work, I'll define that in a moment, with the network itself requiring minimal structure. That's in the opening paragraph in the abstract. Okay. Well, of course, raises a couple of questions. Who is or who are Satoshi Nakamoto? Because in a way, if you read the paper and you look at the invention, it's a combination of a crypto mathematician, a C coder, and a businessman. Or some people think a scam man. In any case, it could be one individual possessing all those skills or a team of people working together that created it. In any case, Satoshi backed off and disappeared a couple years later and left it off and running. In a way, some people think like Prometheus brought fire to mankind and uh, then let man have his way with it. Well, in any case, if we go back and take a look at that original Satoshi paper, he points out, or they point out, I'll just use he for an arbitrary pronoun, that Internet commerce relies on financial institutions as trusted third parties. Let's think about it. If we're going to do business in our organizations to be able to transfer goods or services, we need to get paid. Well, we like to get paid. And to do so, we do so through financial institutions. Those are our trusted third parties. Well, can you do business without a bank? maybe if you just exchange directly okay can you do business without bank notes basically currency well now you need a trusted third party that's a government issuing if i offer to pay you in zimbabwean dollars are you going to be happy with that probably not and as a result we need these trusted third parties what if we lived in a world with no trust i've talked about zero trust but that was for a network but how about an economic system where you don't have trust the paper suggests we could substitute cryptographic proof for trust, basically believe in the math and utilizing crypto in a way that we can cause transactions to be computationally impractical to reverse, basically the age of the universe plus one to go ahead and undo something. Therefore it works with well, one minor exception if more than half The computing power of the network belongs to a single entity, that entity can attack and take over the network. Well, the thought is, it's sort of a mutually assured destruction, kind of like the old nuclear pact between the Soviet Union and the United States. I won't launch because if I do, then you'll destroy me, and then we'll both destroy each other. So the only winning move is not to play. And therefore, the thought was, why would you amass all this computing power just to take out the thing that you had built all this computing power to run. And yet there's still that attack, which is not so theoretical when it comes to other cryptocurrencies, what they're called altcoins. But let's take a quick look. I'm not going to get into the math. I'm not going to get into the details. But what basically are we talking about when we talk about a blockchain? A blockchain is essentially a series of blocks of information. We'll talk about what goes into that in a moment wherein each block incorporates some information from the prior block, and specifically a hash, a SHA-256 hash. A block is going to consist of a block header and a number of transactions. What's a transaction? transaction basically says, hey, from this account to that account, we're transferring a certain amount of value. Think of blockchain like a really long cash register tape that doesn't have any perforations in it years ago when i worked as a night manager at a grocery store that was one of my jobs is that from time to time the person working the register would call up and said hey it's not working or it stopped or it's got some little error code well the clerk would only utilize the receipt generator for the customer you print it up tear it off print it up tear it off but inside the cash register is a second receipt That was a big, long spool that never broke, and you couldn't break the paper. Why? You had to save it for auditing purposes if the tax authorities came in. They want to know exactly how much money you collected. All right, fair enough. But what was interesting then is that, in a way, was sort of the first equivalent of a, uh, a chain of transactions, each block representing a purchase by a customer or maybe even a refund. But because that paper was unbroken, and the auditor could validate that there was an unbroken chain of transactions, they believed that that was, in fact, the accurate representation of whatever happened. We can do the same thing with computers and cryptographically. And the way it works, then, is to take this block, transactions, a header, and calculate a hash. Now, hashes are one-way functions that have a principle of a fixed length of output, a simple change of the input creates a significant change in the output, and it's statistically infeasible, pretty much impossible for humans anyway, to come up with two different inputs that are going to rely or generate the same output. That would be called a collision. If you could create a collision at will, then the hash isn't a lot of good for validating whether or not a transaction is really true. Now, as blockchains grow, what happens is you say, well, if calculating a hash is pretty straightforward, where's the security? And it turns out that the security lies in the difficulty of going ahead and trying to create a hash on demand. Essentially, a hash, you could think of it as almost like a random number generator. You get 256 bits, and as they say, change one bit of the input, a whole bunch of the output changes. All right. Now... What if I want to go ahead and create what's called a proof that this transaction set is indeed valid? What's proposed in the Bitcoin paper and what has been adopted in blockchain is something called a proof of work. Proof of work, we can relate to that if we ever a math class in high school and the teacher said all right students you need to turn in for homework tomorrow the answers to problems one through seven 8a and nine and if you don't you can't get an a because you need to do it and don't forget to show your work well i don't care how good you are in that class if you don't turn in your homework you're not going to get an a because you need to demonstrate that proof of work a proof of work here is done by simply requiring that the hash meet a certain pattern. What do I mean by that? Well, if a hash is 256 bits, what are the odds and an arbitrary value being hashed that the first bit will be a zero? Well, one and two. How about the first two bits being both zero? One and four, then one and eight, one and 16 and so on. And what happens then is that if we were to say, hey, if I could perturb the input Add what we call a nonce, a number used once. Then what happens is that you get a different random number generated. And what we see then is these gigantic mining rigs. Not just a single, but hundreds or thousands of them set up are consuming a vast amount of electrical power doing what? They keep trying different solutions until by pure luck, you bump into an input that creates the right number of zeros at the beginning of the hash at which point you call bingo and you have effectively mined the block well all the other people are trying to mine the block because checking a hash is trivial can validate that and go ah nuts he got it and then they move on to the next block and so as a result what happens is the bitcoin mining or any blockchain mining consists of a whole bunch of wrong guesses until you get a right guess well how does that does that work apparently so if you think about it The way that Bitcoin was set up for that blockchain is it's got a limit. 21 million coins maximum. And the last of them get issued in the year 2140. All right. About the time Captain Jim Kirk is in diapers. Right now, there's about 18.7 million in circulation because they started coming out early. Every 10 minutes, about 50. And then... After four years cut to 25 and then four more years, 12 and a half. And now it's at six and a quarter. Every four years we have the great halvening, as you will, where the reward is continually cut in half. And so asymptotically it approaches zero and does hit zero at the year 2140. Now, if we look at the market cap of Bitcoin, it's over $1 trillion. Well, might not be this morning, but it was a couple days ago. It's very volatile, but... That $1 trillion, if you go back to December of 2018, was only $56 billion. But December 2017 was $327 billion. And in January 2015, it was $2 billion. This is all over the map. And it's a little bit of a frightening ride if someone were to go ahead and take a look at how we use it for cryptocurrency. Maybe we'll find out that it stabilizes in the future. But for right now, uh, it's kind of interesting. In any case, when a miner mines a block, all they're doing is simply trying to come up with a solution that meets this puzzle criteria. Do you begin with enough zeros, essentially? And in 2009, when the Genesis block was created, then the first block mined on that was the 8th of January, 32 zeros, basically 1 and 2 to the 32nd power, taking a Pentium 2 computer about 10 minutes to... Grind through those guesses until you get it. Today, it's two to the 80th power. Just a fantastic number of computations, and as a result, if you look at the Bitcoin energy consumption, 99. Point, essentially, nine 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 It is the least efficient invention ever created by mankind. Sorry. And the carbon footprint is greater than the entire nation of Hong Kong. The electrical energy consumption is greater than all of the Philippines. And the electronic waste it generates is greater than the nation of Luxembourg. And there are trackers that show how all this energy is consumed. But boy, what a ride. Up to $60,000 a little bit earlier this year. Up from $6,000 in April of last year, 2020. And therefore it's just um a highly volatile asset. But now what's interesting is if you look at the concept of crossing the chasm, Jeffrey Moore, we'll realize that Bitcoin And therefore, to a certain extent, blockchain has crossed from those early adopters, the experimenters, people who are willing to try it, into early mainstream. We're starting to see a lot more acceptance, which means it's going to have a lot more business presence, not just for cryptocurrency. And we'll talk a little bit more about other applications for it. But I want to get the foundational element of of why um, blockchain came about. And with blockchain, we get some features, if you will, the transactions are recorded in a trustworthy peer-to-peer ledger. There's no longer a single sole source. If I go to the bank, deposit $1,000, and tomorrow I'll go there, and they say, here's your $10 back. I said, I put it in $1,000. Well, the clerk only under $10. you are not going to win that argument. But with a blockchain, everybody gets a copy of the same block, and you don't take your fingers off that $1,000 bill till you see then they take their fingers and grab it and pull it from you that it's recorded. It uses cryptography. The ledger is an open, distributed record. Anybody can see anything. You can download the entire blockchain and see every single transaction going all the way back to 2009. And everybody maintains their own copy of that ledger. And there's a network consensus on whether the updates are accurate. So you can't cheat. You can't lie. And the concept of having to do all those efforts, two to the 80th power attempts at trying to come up with the right answer, suggests that if you wanted to go back in time and double spend, hey, I used a Bitcoin yesterday and I want to go ahead and overwrite that record. You would then have to catch up with the rest of the world by recalculating a new hash and then making it meet that 2 to the 80th power requirement, which took all the computers in the whole world that are working on the problem, 10 minutes to come up with the answer. But then you still got another 20 or 30 blocks to catch up with. Essentially, you would have to have orders of magnitude more computing than available on the planet to go ahead and cheat. And as a result, when we have a long blockchain like that, it becomes well established that this is authoritative. I mean, from time to time, and I've even thought this, it wouldn't be nice to kind of have a do-over and say, OK, let's." we got an idea, this swing blockchain works, this Bitcoin works let's do a new start start the clock start the problem and and begin from scratch and let everybody go from the same dead start but that doesn't give you the provenance of a 10 11 um, year record now 12 year record of established blocks there's a huge amount of energy that has been established in creating these blocks and to a certain extent some people would even consider a cryptocurrency to be an energy-based currency Nonetheless, other benefits you can get from blockchain. You eliminate these prior trusted relationships. Meaning, if I want to buy something with a Bitcoin and you want to sell me something with a Bitcoin, we don't have to know each other. We don't have to trust each other. But we can validate on our own copies of the blockchain that, yes, indeed, my wallet really does have Bitcoin in it as compared to, oh, nope, you spent it last week. You don't have to take my word for it. You can validate it yourself. I don't need a chain of intermediaries To establish any bona fides, I don't have to go to the bank. I don't need to have any special ID. I don't have to have a pass or a permission. I can use some of these public blockchains, just walk up and and utilize it. I get a high degree of trust without any prior validation. And now the transaction is the settlement. There's no three day wait. There's no waiting for the bank to do it. It works out. And therefore, we end up with a whole lot less fees in there because, well, of course, now and again, Bitcoin fees have just skyrocketed. But in general, you don't have all these other hands that are out looking for something. Well, what can you use this blockchain for? Currency, been done. Payment infrastructure, send money around the world, essentially done. Uh, Digital assets, we've seen that, and more recently I'll talk about in a moment, this concept of an NFT, non-fungible token, that's been done. Identity provides a blockchain identity as a proof, and that can be done easily with a private blockchain or uh, in the world of blockchain, a permission blockchain. I'll talk about that as well. We can prove existence. If you write something into the blockchain, you can demonstrate this value existed at this date and time. I think that'd be really great for forensics. Go ahead and capture a hash and then move. 20 cents worth of cryptocurrency from your left pocket to your right pocket and include in the op return or some other type comment field. Here's the hash. This thing goes to court two years later. Somebody argues, well, how do we know you didn't alter the evidence? Well, let's take a look at the blockchain. If somebody were to have changed that, if they had that horsepower, they would have stolen billions of dollars. In this case, is not worth billions of dollars, and therefore my hash is accurate and the evidence is valid. Meh. And then also things like smart contracts, what we've We found out that that works pretty well. See, blockchain replaces some of the value that had been provided in the past by intermediaries. They generate currency, they validate identification, create identification cards, do the business transaction logic, do the clearing, the settling, the record-keeping. These are all centralized. And as a result, they can be hacked, as some of them found out. Plus, our traditional banking systems exclude the poorest people call unbanked or marginally blank banked. We got a lot of those, even in the United States, people who have perhaps no regular bank account, they might have a government EBT card or something that says, Hey, here's your monthly deposit to help you live. But they don't have access to the same other resources that more uh, wealthy people do. Uh, it's slow to process transactions. It takes days or sometimes weeks to move money. And banks take a big VIG. That's why they're so profitable. Plus, they'll capture your transaction data and maybe sell it to advertisers and your privacy could be compromised. Blockchain builds a protocol of trust. It disintermediates these trusted entities. And now your trust is in the crypto and the mathematics. And it's all open source code, by the way. If you have the chops, you can go ahead and validate the transaction code and you can validate it and say, hey, this works. Uh, The transaction, as I said before, is the settlement. There's no waiting three days for it to be final. There's also no way to claw it back either like a disputed credit card charge. When you do a transaction, it's done. What if I type the Bitcoin address wrong? It's gone because use the public-private key pairs. If you send it off to a public key, public address, if you will, which is basically a double hash of of a public key, And you can't, uh, oops, I made a mistake. I, I spelled it wrong. It's gone. And as a result, there is a definite demand for precision there. And, of course, no single ledger or authority that could be altered or corrupted. So, ironically, this whole protocol of trust was originally built on a presumption of mistrust. Now, one of the interesting things from a business perspective is a concept of being able to do smart contracts essentially a contract is an enforceable agreement between parties you could hire a lawyer and do a written contract and that requires time and money and hassle and well lawyers or you could agree in front of a lot of others that would help enforce the deal if we go back Uh, To Genesis chapter 31, Jacob and Laban made a pile of stones, a heap of stones, and they said our ancestors will tell their children and their grandchildren that we made this barrier, this border together, and therefore it's preserved in the community memory. But I think in the 21st century, we can do better than a heap of stones. And what we have then is the concept of a smart contract. A smart contract is a contract that's enforceable in software where both parties agree to the terms and the terms are codified into, well, code. But where would you run the code? and How do you enforce the contract and prevent double spending and avoid code tampering and how do you get multiple parties to agree? Well welcome to the smart contract. A smart contract is analogous to a vending machine. There's product that has been inserted there, something of value. You want to do a transaction. You insert a coin, make a selection, receive a product. Now, what we have then is some triggering event. It doesn't have to be inserting a coin. It could be an expiration date and a strike price for a um, stock or, or bond. It could even be something such as, hey, do you want to have electronic lock on your Airbnb, uh, your apartment. And if somebody goes ahead and they pay for a night, then they get electronic access to the premises. They pay for another night, they get electronic access. Money doesn't go in, you don't generate the key, there's no key, there's no access. And this could all be done automatically. These smart concepts are known as distributed apps or dApps. Essentially, you place an asset into the program, execute the program, and when the condition is met, the asset is moved. And there's a ledger for auditability. Well, what's interesting is the first real basis for all that was something called Ethereum. Ethereum becomes the engine. And therefore, because these blocks are being validated, mined, the approval, the cryptographic difficulty factor that keeps anybody from arguing this isn't real, has extended beyond just moving money to being able to have all these smart contracts running. There are over 380,000 tokens that have been created so far on Ethereum. And the top three have a market cap of over $100 billion. Now, two years ago, is was less than $10 billion. And as a result, we're seeing this huge, huge increase in things like Binance Coin, Tether, and... Uh, you know, Uniswap, I think, are the top three, at least when he last checked. Could move. But it's fairly straightforward to do so. And it's interesting when you look at the history of that, of Ethereum. is the granddaddy of smart contracts. Vitalik Buterin was only 19 years old when he created it. Wow. Pretty amazing guy. And it uses a cryptocurrency called Ether. And it was a gigantic public offering a few years back. I think he could have got it for even forget what the price was because I wasn't part of it. I knew about it. I was aware of it. And like a lot of smart people, perhaps, maybe I wasn't so smart, looked at it and go, well, that's kind of interesting, but I don't want to go there. Well, right now, an Ether is over $2,000. And I think it was a buck at the beginning. And yeah, there's a whole bunch of millionaires out there if you got in early. And essentially, the way it works is this Ether was designed basically as a transaction fee payment. It's called gas, and you pay the miners who generate the blocks. This smart contract relies on the mining power of Ethereum to enforce the permanence of the blocks. So we go ahead and we create a smart contract. We commit it to Ethereum network. We pay for it with Ether, and then it gets locked down as a result of this cryptographic proof of work. Now there's some concerns about proof of work requiring all this computing power, consuming all this electricity, generating all of the heat, of course, and then the byproducts from electrical generation. And as I joke, the historians of the 22nd century will show that the true cause of global warming in the 21st century was the mining of cryptocurrencies. Well, there's alternative ways such as proof of stake, probably one of the biggest proof-of-stake coins that came out was EOS. And that started out on its own mainnet in June of 2017. And it uses a proof-of-stake. And I'm not going to get into all the details right now. If if you're really interested, give us some feedback, and we can certainly uh, dive into it. But I want to kind of talk about, you know, what can we do about uh, blockchain from a business perspective? Well, if you think about it, here are some of the applications. Um, You could disrupt the sharing economy, kind of like What Uber did for the taxi business, Uh, Airbnb, single company, centralized information, had an IPO recently, did very, very well. But there's been proposals to say, create a distributed blockchain replacement where the peers join, all the landlords are listed, and there's trusted verifiers that provide that cryptographic assent to the properties that are claimed your reputation becomes immutable. You can't edit it. You can't do ballot stuffing because there has to be an actual exchange of money between parties for a stay to be valid at which point then one can comment on it. And the contracts and payments are built into the system. I don't know, but if I uh, were at Airbnb after you are done with the IPO party, I'd be thinking, Hmm, how do we deal with this as a potential existential threat when it comes to settlements? A few years back, I was over in Doha, Qatar, on business, and I found out that about 80% of residents in that nation are expatriates. They're brought in from other countries to do a lot of the work, and foreign workers are paid marginally, and they wait in line for hours at a Western Union to send some money home to their families. And between high fees and lousy exchange rates and really sole source, it costs almost 9 to 10% to move money, uh, which means... It's expensive to be poor, but then what happens in a world of blockchain when you can send money in 10 minutes for 5 cents? That's totally disruptive to that industry. How about things like intellectual property? Imogen Heap founded Mycelium who said, hey, music authors now can go ahead and potentially get some benefits from their rights. Why? It turns out that about 25 years ago, if you sold a million singles, you get about $45,000 in royalties. Not bad for a double gold record. Today, with all the online plays you can get, you get about $36. Not $36,000, $36. And as a result, it looks like there's an opportunity for disruption. Real estate. Turns out about 70% of landowners in the world have a tenuous claim to title. But if you place the titles onto the blockchain, those records become truly permanent. And there are some counties here in the United States who've already started doing that. Now, if you've ever done a real estate transaction, you know you have all these additional charges, title search, title insurance, this, that, that, the other thing. Those are all, with all due respect to the industry, parasitic charges. They add really little value. And the title companies are not so much interested in protecting you as they are in protecting themselves. Title insurance is about what? Insurance companies aren't in the business of writing checks. They're in the business of cashing checks. And so all these exclusions say, hey, you know, basically, we're not going to pay if all these things could have happened. But if we saw it and we missed it and it's our fault, we got it. Well, I'm told by title companies, oh, yeah, these things pay out, but I've never, ever known anybody to collect on a title policy. Nonetheless, that's a totally disruptive approach for doing things in that. Guess what? We probably don't need a title search anymore because anybody trivially can take a look at a blockchain. Hey, look at the number of liens that are on a property and look at the number of lien satisfactions. If the number is zero, then the property free and cleared, done. If it's a positive number, well, then we have to go ahead and clear a mechanics lien. That's easy. Now what we're seeing is move into supply chain management. And... That's probably going to be an interesting area for um, a, a future episode, talking about how do we manage our supply chain from a security perspective, how do we validate our our third parties, etc. But if you remember a couple of years ago, that romaine lettuce scare where they destroyed ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the product that was innocent because this 0.001% had some problems with it. Well, now if you had an authoritative way to track everything, the source, the intermediaries, the transport, the government inspectors, customers, customs, distributors, retailers, guess what? You know exactly where it is and say, hey, this truck had a problem or this rail car had a problem or this worker had a problem or this box from the farm. And now you have integrity verification all the way down the supply chain. The craziest buzz, at least from my perspective, in blockchain is non-fungible transactions. Now, originally it was things like rare peeps or crypto punks or crypto kitties. You might have heard of those. Well, in March of 2021, Beeple, a.k.a. Mike Winkleman, sold a non-fungible token for his collage. Every day the first 5,000 days for a staggering 69 million dollars. $69 million. And you don't even get the artwork to put in your living room. You basically get a blockchain entry that says, I bought it. And if you actually get into NFTs, it's a pointer to a pointer to a URL. And with web link rot that goes on all the time, who knows if that's even going to be there five or six or eight, 10 years from now. But good for him, kind of proving what Marshall McLuhan said. Art is anything you can get away with. I give up 69 million bucks just for an entry on a blockchain. Well, what's happening here? Do we have anything that we can look forward to in terms of blockchain in our business? To a certain extent, a lot of the early excitement was about these public blockchains and use of cryptocurrency. Three years ago, I built or designed a system using IBM Hyperledger Fabric to create a permission blockchain. Now, this is an area where we might just do a whole episode on this because you learn a whole lot more about how do we then go ahead and build our own systems for business. And fundamentally, a permissioned blockchain allows one to validate identity, allocate different permissions to different entities. So not everybody can go ahead and write to the block and you can control who gets what. Not everybody gets everything. So now... You can do things such as use that for your supply chain if i can have a different price for customer one and customer two that can all be validated in a smart contract but customer one can't look at customer two's contract and say hey you know what kind of deal did you get you get a better deal than i did if i'm sending things through customs they can see certain things but not others and if i'm going to go ahead and Make sure that my terms and conditions are met. They can all be specified and there's no question of, well, wait a minute, I didn't remember reading that. It's in the blockchain. It's there. This is probably going to be the disruptive stuff. Right now, we're seeing this huge flurry of all this money going in and out of all these coins. Dogecoin, I mean, that's ridiculous. 10,000% appreciation. Um, Thank you, Elon, for your tweeting on that. But Doge itself was created as a joke. I mean, some people don't even know how to pronounce it. It's doggy coin or whatever. It's a a joke, son. And yet, its valuation topped $100 billion earlier in April of 2021. It's like, seriously? Well, in any case, what's going to settle down, in my opinion, is going to be the use of blockchain for Business contracts being able to have a provable, verifiable business relationship where we're not going to use a public blockchain. We're not going to go ahead and melt the polar ice caps. We're going to use permissioned blockchain where cryptographic signatures provide it, much in the way that your passport is signed by a State Department or your driver's license is, if you will, authorized or validated by a State Driver's License Bureau. The same sort of thing. You can't just print up your own fake ID and stick it onto this permission blockchain. At all, all these transactions have to be made that way. That's going to be where we're going to go. Why do we go through all this little background on blockchain? Well, it's not going away. It's a lot more than cryptocurrency, and if you haven't experienced yet, it's going to be disruptive to many industries, and you're going to expect violent opposition by those whose business models are feeling threatened. You may be working in an organization like that as a CISO or as a senior security leader or someone aspiring to that position. People are going to turn to you and say, hey, what's this blockchain thing? And you need to be able to explain it in terms that, for pardon the analogy, but Dilbert's pointy-haired boss might understand. And as a result, if you get it, if you see that this is a distributed ledger, that uses cryptographic signatures to lock things down to provide both authentication and non repudiation, going to our crypto business opportunities. Then we can adapt that as an alternative to external third party trust relationships, recapturing the value that we pay to those third parties and being able to utilize it either ourselves or distribute it among our trading partners. There's a lot more fortunes to be made if you're forward thinking. Keep an open mind. Learn what you can. Fund some pilot programs. Approve those and say, hey, let's give this blockchain initiative a try. You're not going to have to bet the farm. And I really don't recommend that you bet the farm either. But what you'll find out, if you keep swinging, you'll eventually hit your home run. And you're going to be able to go ahead and to create a valuable, valid use of of blockchain in your organization and as the head of a security lead you can look at it and say you know what the crypto is correct the tr- permissions are correct the trust is correct and therefore we can validate that this transactions anything recorded are correct Alrighty, well hopefully you found this useful uh, if so let us know give us some feedback and say hey i love this also, don't forget to follow us at CISOTradeCraft.com. If you're on LinkedIn, follow us there. We'll let you know when we have new episodes coming up. We've got a lot more information for you. We're going to continue to deliver value. We hope you find this of great interest. And uh, share it with your friends. Let them know where you got it. So until next time, G. Mark Hardy speaking here for CISO TradeCraft. Uh, stay safe out there. And hopefully you find this of great value in your career.